what is self-harm, right? What is that? That is a child desperate to connect to something real that they have conjured as an experienced emotional feeling. And they are so adrift, their lives are so controlled by the system and by the accountability measures that the only way they can actually own their own experience is to physically harm themselves. And there's some perverse pleasure in actually being able to control their experience for once, right? That, that tells us something very important about the kind of system that we're, that we're really imposing on kids. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first episode of season two of the Rethinking Education podcast. It's so nice to be back. And what an episode we have in store as a way to get back into the swing of things. Today, I'm speaking with Mary Helen Imordino Yang, whose work is, I honestly think, the most important that I've yet come across in all my years of dabbling in education research and trying to understand how young people learn and develop, what we should be doing in schools to help them, and what we should maybe stop doing as soon as is humanly possible. Mary Helen is a professor of education, psychology and neuroscience at the University of Southern California and the director of CANDLE, the Centre for Affective Neuroscience, Development, Learning and Education, which, among many other notable achievements, is surely the most successful academic acronym of all time, although it's not a very competitive field, to be fair. Mary Helen and her team study the psychological and neurobiological development of emotion and self-awareness. In particular, her work highlights the importance of emotions, sociality and culture in young people's social, cognitive and moral development. She uses cross-cultural interdisciplinary studies of stories and the feelings they induce to shine a light on the neural networks that underpin identity, intrinsic motivation and deep, meaningful learning. Mary Helen's work often features children and adolescents from disadvantaged communities and she also often involves these young people from these communities as junior scientists who are participants as well as subjects in her research. A former public high school science teacher, Mary Helen has a doctorate in human development and psychology from Harvard University and she completed her postdoctoral training in social affective neuroscience with Antonio Damasio, whose research has been incredibly important in shaping Mary Helen's work alongside other people like Kurt Fisher. In 2016, Mary Helen published her first book, Emotions, Learning and the Brain, which summarises the key findings from the previous decade of her work. And I cannot recommend this book highly enough to anyone with an interest in how children learn and how adolescents develop into young adults. I really think it's such an important read, as is the work that Mary Helen has done in the five years since the book was published. In the foreword, Howard Gardner wrote, As I read through these essays, I had an uplifting feeling Readers of this book will be present at the birth and early stages of a new and vital field of knowledge. Building both on the initial vision of cognitive science and on the important modifications and improvements introduced by her teachers, by other leading scholars, as well as by her own research, Mary Helen Imordino Yang presents a panoply of important findings, fascinating in their own right and pregnant with implications for anyone interested in teaching and learning. 
And since we now know that these processes begin at birth, if not in utero, and continue as long as one's mind is active, one can readily envision how a full-blown panorama of mind, brain and education throughout the life cycle may emerge in the decades ahead. I can state with confidence that the work in these pages will be fundamental to this crucial field and I have every confidence that Mary Helen Imodino Yang will continue her singular contributions to its vitality. Close quote. Mary Helen has received numerous awards for her research and the impact that it's had on education and the wider society, including an honor coin from the US Army, a commendation from the County of Los Angeles, a Cosarelli Prize from the Proceedings of the US National Academy of Sciences, and a host of early career achievement awards that are too numerous to mention. Towards the end of this conversation, we talk about three networks of the brain that are really central to Mary Helen's work. These are the default mode network, the salience network, and the executive control network. If you're not familiar with this language, then when we get to this part of the conversation, you might think, hmm, I don't really know what these things are. And I was very much hoping that we would have time to unpack what these three networks are and how they interact towards the end of the conversation. Unfortunately, we ran out of time, but fortunately, Mary Helen recently co-authored an excellent paper with her colleague Doug Connect, which explains these three brain networks and how they work and interact in lay terms. The paper is called Building Meaning Builds Teens Brains, which is easier written than said, and it's well worth a read. There's a link in the show notes. So, without further ado, I give you Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Mary Helen, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. I think I should probably start by saying thanks to uh, Adrian. I'm not sure how to pronounce his surname. Adrian Von Reed or Rady Jervis for putting me in touch with you uh, and putting me onto your work. Um, so I started, he, he was enthusing about it and for, for some time and he persuaded me to take a look. And so I started reading your book um, some time ago, and I often found that I would come across a passage that was so brilliant. I was like, right, I'm going to dictate that into like, I had this little notes page with like Google Docs, and then that would turn into the whole paragraph. And then the next paragraph would be a killer as well. I'd be like, okay, I'll do that. I ended up with a Google Doc with over (laughs) 10,000 words of notes based on the book and also like other other publications of yours, which is ridiculous. So needless to say, I am very excited to have come across your work and I'm really looking forward to getting to understand it even better in the course of this conversation. And it's been fascinating in itself, but it's also been fascinating as a way for me to make sense of the work that I've been involved in for the last 10 years or so, which is sort of like two key ideas, really. One around learning to learn, working with kids, and another one working around with practitioner inquiry, working with adults, which I often think of as essentially like learning to learn for adults. And so I'd like to begin by sort of setting the scene, if you like, and painting a picture of some recent developments and shifts that have taken place in the UK education system recently. And I'd be interested to hear whether there are any similarities or differences with what's been happening stateside. So I trained to teach 
15 years ago, 2006, I was a science teacher like yourself. And at that time, there was a huge focus on skills. Even the Department for Education at that time was called the DFES, the Department for Education and Skills, weirdly. Or Department for Education. Yeah, yeah, it was. So that's how big the skills agenda was. It was literally like on the door above the government department, which was a bit strange, to be fair. And this was reflected in the curriculum. So in science, there was a big focus on how science works, you know, teaching science as a process, uh, as well as a sort of body of knowledge. And there was a, just as one example of a big national initiative called SEAL, the Social and Emotional Aspects of Learning, which I thought there was some pretty good stuff in. It was There was some lots of quite high quality resources produced. It was implemented in about 90% of primary schools, about 70% of secondary schools. And it centered around five key strands, as I recall. There was like self-awareness, managing feelings, motivation, empathy, uh, social skills was the fifth one. But it was patchy, as you would expect with any sort of national level initiative. And a national evaluation revealed that there was a very mixed picture, which I think is like research speak for like a bit of a dog's dinner. <laughs> we have no idea what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and um, and for example, like, so so yeah, so implementation was mixed, as you might imagine. And for example, often they talked about there was a box ticking approach. Like in some schools, they would have to have a social and emotional lesson objective in every lesson. So you'd have weird things like today, kids, we're going to learn about the alkali metals and empathy. You know, for, I know. <laughs> honestly, somebody I spoke to on the podcast recently said that they had something very similar happen, even like very recently. And, and a key factor in the evaluation seemed to be the extent to which SEAL was implemented as a whole school initiative, where, where there was whole school buy-in, it seemed that there were gains, not just in social and emotional outcomes, but also in academic outcomes. But overall, you know, it was mixed. And as is the way with such things, mixed things get swept away and, dis and disregarded. And so they all got rid of it. And I'm aware that the similar things have been happening in the States. I think it's generally called SEL over there, social and emotional learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has there been similar initiatives there? And what's the current state of play? And what's been your experience of SEL initiatives to date? Yeah, well, that's very interesting about this SEAL uh, initiative in, in Britain. I, I actually didn't know about it. Yeah, we have something similar right now. It sounds like maybe maybe the U.S. and Britain have kind of flip-flopped in that, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we had this thing called No Child Left Behind, which was a well-intentioned initiative to try to improve educational outcomes through intensive testing and accountability, which failed utterly, you know, predictably so. But it was a political initiative that had a lot of motivation at that, at that time. You know, you can't keep testing yourself out of situations, right? You actually have to understand what's going on and support the people in the situation. You know what I mean? It's like it's like a physician who just, you know, takes their patient's temperature and says, oh yeah, you're sick. Well, I'll say it again next week. Oh wow, you're still sick. You know, I mean, like, that, doesn't, that really doesn't tell you what to do. And now we have a, a major movement toward so-called whole child approaches, which, you know, is basically a recognition that quote unquote, learning outcomes, right, which I, I think is such a problematic notion, but these learning outcomes don't capture everything you need to know to be able to effectively educate young people. And we should be attending to other things also, like, so to speak, social and emotional learning, S-E-L, 
But it sounds like much like what you're describing from Britain, often this, you know, these social and emotional learning curricula are kind of an add-on or a separate thing from the academic learning. And they're seen as another kind of learning as compared to really understanding it the way I do, in which, in which I think that the neuroscience is really pushing us to really appreciate how, you know, emotions and culture and sociality and, you know, ways of learning in a social space that's really how our brains develop and grow and that there really isn't in the brain a clear you know delineation between quote unquote academic or or scholarly or cognitive skills and quote unquote emotional or social or cultural learning that we learn our academic academic skills are cultural right they've changed over time they look different than they did 500 years ago or in ancient greece right or in mayan civilizations from you know i mean it's like the academic skills themselves are cultural and there are deep interactions between the propensities and dispositions of the person, the emotional and social ways that our brains and minds develop and uh, the ways that we adapt ourselves to and accommodate and construct deep understanding and curiosity and emotion and, and, and thinking patterns around disciplinary information. So I really see this as a very promising movement in the U.S. and that we're finally attending to the fact that kids' emotions and social relationships and, and cultural backgrounds matter a lot for how they think and learn and grow. But we are still very far from understanding, I think, what needs to be a major shift in the field of education. And I've been sort of conceptualizing this and I haven't really written about this yet. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, you can criticize or say it's not clear, but I've been sort of conceptualizing this as, as like akin to a Copernican revolution in education that needs to happen. So, so you know, pre-Copernicus, right? Astronomers uh, sort of stood on the earth as the center of the universe and watched stuff go by, right? Up in the sky and tried to, you know, predict and describe the trajectories of these things going by. And, you know, to great extent they could, but there's a lot, there was a lot of pesky stuff that just didn't fit in their models that they, and they had to keep sort of adding on extra constants and, and fixes and like throw out that data. We don't really know what that, that thing that came from the wrong side of the sky uh, is. So let's just not deal with it. Right. And, you know, why does Mars go retrograde? I don't know. Just add some more numbers into our model and fix it. Right. Yeah. If you, you know, came after Copernicus, right, like Newton did, right, all of a sudden you shift what he what he did that was so fundamental is he shifted um, the whole perspective on the problem space so that. He helped astronomers understand that, you know, it is legitimate, it is accurate what you're, accu what you're measuring from the sky right now. But if you were to shift your perspective so that your models have at their center the sun, and we are one of the objects orbiting it along with these other objects, all of a sudden the models of what's going by in our sky become much more parsimonious. All of a sudden, we, all the extra constants and fixes fall away. Yeah. And things become much more straightforward to understand. And not only that, there's less need to throw out data that you can't accommodate. And it really sets up a new appreciation of the dynamics of the system itself that allow you to discover things like, oh, gravity, 
right? Like, you know, Newton, it's not, an, and, you know, I'm not an expert on this history by any means, but, you know, it's not, a, it's not an accident that, that he came after Copernicus. You can't really understand the forces that are making these objects move relative to one another unless you really can appreciate the motion pattern in a, in a parsimonious way that most directly represents the reality of what's going on, right? It's, it's a repositioning of the scientists themselves. And what I think we need to do in education is very similar to that. And we're kind of starting, right? Right now, we're still standing on Earth as, as teachers and administrators and, and even the children, you know, watching these metrics, these learning outcomes go by. And we're trying to say, like, well, that one went wonky. Like, add some growth mindset or, you know, bring a little social interventional learning over here, right? And let's see if we can fix it up and make them go keep going to the West, right? And if we shift our perspective so that the center of the solar system, so to speak, is the experience of the people in the system, what it feels like to be in that system as an intellectual, as a scholar, as a human who is thinking in that domain. If we shift that to be the center of the solar system and make it so that all of the other work that we're doing is rotating around that, right? Then all of a sudden, all these extra interventions and, and constructs and needs for fixes become greatly reduced because the focus is on what it feels like to think in this in this academic system, right? In this in this school system. And how would we design a school system? How would we build the, the things orbiting around in such a way that they would really impact and shift the way that it feels to be in the system and to think in that system. And when we think like that, that to me is really the essence of, of a whole child approach, but it, it really goes beyond what people often mean when they talk about whole child approach now, because to do this is really going to require a very new kind of science, a very new kind of transdisciplinary evidence gathering, right? And it's not that the evidence we have right now on learning outcomes and things like that aren't real. It's not that we, and it's not that we need more data than we have. It's that we need a different kind of data. Just like the people on the Earth pre-Copernicus, where you know they're watching everything go by. Now they had to completely rethink the the way that they modeled why those things were going by like that and shift the perspective so that the that that those those objects were seen from a, in a different perspective, right? And I think that's what we need to do now. We need to shift the way we think about the purpose of education, the aim of education, and the way we measure and account for what happens in education settings so that they center the experience of thinking in that system as an individual and as a community. Wow. <laughs> that was that was Absolutely incredible. So you're talking about something that's more here than just like a shift from like a curriculum centered model to a child centered model. You're talking about something that's much more about like not just like the interest of the child, but like placing the experience of the child. You were talking about about how it feels to be that child and what it, how it feels to think within that system. I'm trying to understand that language a little bit. You say that it goes further than than whole than whole child education or holistic education. Can you just maybe flesh that out a little bit? In what ways is it different to what has been characterized in the past 
as like child-centered education. Yeah, no, and it's not completely different, right? But it, what it really calls us to do is reinterpret the data we have in terms of what they actually reveal about or don't reveal about what it felt like to be the person who was measured as that data point, right? And what, it, what kind of thinking that person was doing. So what it, what it really means is that we want to start to spend much more attention looking at not so much the quote unquote learning outcomes, right? Of course, those will follow. Of course, we need kids to know algebra two and to, you know, have their butt in the seat on Monday morning and to, you know, graduate and all that. But those things are not the metrics that tell you what to do, right? What we need to focus our information gathering on and our, and our work on is a much more process oriented approach to understanding how do young people and teachers engage with one another in these contexts? And even beyond that, what does it feel like to think? What kinds of thoughts, what dispositions of heart and mind, what kinds of curiosities, what kinds of engaged, motivated reasoning and deep thinking about complex issues do you engage with in this setting? And how might we design ways to measure and support that? So it really shifts the purpose of education from one that, you know, from education that promotes quote unquote learning outcomes to education that promotes human development. Yeah. It promotes the development of the young people in the system. You know, another way to think about it, it you know, it's just a silly example, but it's, but I think it, it maybe helps is, you know, it, it's almost as if we have a bunch of kids and we want them to play a soccer tournament, right? And win a soccer game. So what do we do? We realize that to, be, to play soccer, you have to have really strong legs and, and all this stuff, right? So we, so we get some weightlifting equipment and we get all the kids who do their reps and we get all their leg muscles really strong. And then we send them out on the soccer field and like, go, go win the tournament, right? They've, they've never had a chance to play the game, right? They've never engaged with, in a natural way, the, the act of being a citizen using your scholarly dispositions and skills and cultural assets to actually think in a communal space the way you would need to as a fully actualized citizen of a democracy. And yet we expect our kids kind of to, you know, do this in schools, you know, it's the equivalent of like lifting weights. It's so decontextualized. And then we send them off into the world and tell them to be citizens. They've had no experience playing that game. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I really liked, I heard you on a, on a previous podcast with somebody. So they asked you a question that it was something about learning. And it was really refreshing to hear your answer, which was like, I don't think that education should be seen through the prism of learning. It should be seen through the prism of human development, of human becoming, of human flourishing. And by placing, this sounds like the, the system that you're describing, by placing the child's experience at the heart of the system and making it so that every single kid, without exception, can learn how to become confident, a well-rounded, like you say, a self-actualized member of a democratic society, rather than, as at the moment, we have this, this, this all arse about face, isn't it? That the curriculum is at the center, that we determine a pass and fail mark, so that in this country, at least one third of kids roughly fail their end of school exams. And they, like, that's by design, and they, they leave school feeling terrible about themselves. It's like, you just couldn't design a more unethical system if you tried. Like, there's no reason that we couldn't place the child's thriving and flourishing at the center of the process. And to think that we we can actually, you know, we do, you don't need to have failures in order for the other people's achievements to mean something. And that's what some people seem to fall into the gap to the mistake of thinking. But just if I could just quickly, so, so we, we, we like catapulted forward there to thinking about like the educational bit, which is what I was sort of wanting to get to. And, you know, linearity is, is overrated. And I like it. 
<laughs> I like a, I like a, a conversation that meanders around. But I just like to go back for a moment, if I may. So as I say, like around t- 2010, 2011, 10 years ago, all this SEAL stuff, all this skill stuff, lots of focus that there was on vocational learning. There were lots of qualifications. That all there was just a bonfire with all of it. And in came the new government. Uh, there was a coalition government first of all, and then a conservative administration. And we saw a hard shift in the favor of much more traditionalist teaching and learning methods. And there's a whole number of different strands to this. A big part of it is is COGSI, which our friend Adrian has sort of helped me realize that COGSI is not the cognitive sciences more broadly. COGSI is this sort of like a strange outgrowth of the cognitive sciences, which is like cognitive science as it's been embraced and co-opted by a group of mainly quite traditionalist teachers. And so like one of the key ideas that defines this, this thinking comes from the work of Daniel Willingham. And I know that you, you know him a bit and you acknowledge him in your book. And I'd really like to ask you about that in a little while. But the, in particular, I don't know if you recall the diagram that, that I'm referring to from his book, Why Don't Kids Like School, which is he, he refers to it as the simplest version, like model of the mind possible. And there's a box which says like environment then there's an arrow which says attention and then attention goes to like the working memory and then there's another box with long-term memory and you've got remembering stuff and retrieving stuff and then you've got arrows going out of each pointing to forgetting right and so it's this very (laughs) for the benefit of listeners mary helen is sort of smiling incredulously (laughs) so this this is this this incredibly simplified model of the mind, as Willingham acknowledges, but it's as though education is just a matter of like tr- information transfer. So there's information that's in this environment box in the teacher's head or in a book or in the curriculum or whatever, and through paying attention and motivating the kids to pay attention, it goes in their working memory and cognitive load theory has become really popular that we don't want to overload the kids with too much information at once. And out of this, lots of practices have have emerged so things like retrieval practice like it's absolutely widespread now in this country that every lesson starts with retrieval practice with quick quiz questions asking them to remember what happened last week last month last year so, sort of thing things like interleaving uh, the curriculum spaced practice knowledge is massive and that's also something that comes from willingham's work there's, there's one chapter in that book which i think is called something like knowledge precedes skill and of course it's true that like you sort of like you can't think you can't like have you can't, can't think critically about for example how to reform the tax system without knowing a lot about how the tax system works like this stuff doesn't happen in a in a knowledge vacuum and i think that that was the point that he was making that knowledge is important but he also says a lot in that chapter that skills are really important and we need to 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 develop knowledge in tandem with skills but the way that that's been interpreted by the the neo-traditionalists if you like in this country is that it's just about the knowledge and we've got this massive emphasis on the curriculum and a core knowledge curriculum and and this is also happening alongside this and i don't think that it's entirely separate there's been a big shift towards much more strict approaches to behavior management the schools with like silent corridors the, the kids in single file high volume detentions for like minor infractions of the uniform policy say and also just lastly the, the piece in this puzzle is like in terms of pedagogy there's lots of things like a do now task like the second a kid walks into a lesson there's a do now task on the board and it's like do it now and there's this thing called no opt out for example where you know if a kid's asked a question they're not allowed to say i don't know or they're not allowed to pass it's like this high accountability culture you know so there's essentially there's lots of top down pressure in other words happening 
behaviorally and in terms of the curriculum and in terms of pedagogy. And again, I mean, it doesn't sound like from, from what you were saying earlier about, you know, this, it seems like our pendulums are swinging like out of tandem with one another. That's not something that's happening, particularly in the States, from what I can gather. There, there are pockets of them, right? There definitely are pockets of it. And there are also pockets of this more whole child progressive approach, as I imagine there may be in England as well. And, you know, these ideas are on the table here also, but here's what I think about that. I think we really, sometimes, it, you know, it's like the old saying about like the drunk who looks for their keys under the streetlight, right? Yeah, yeah. Not because they dropped them there, but because it's easiest to look there. Yeah. You know, and, and I think applying this quote unquote learning science of, you know, these, because these kinds of effects, like spacing effects and retrieval effects, are so straightforward to measure and, and to study, right? And there's very high quality replicated science around those effects. We put, they're under the streetlight. And so we reorganize our entire education system and pedagogy and aims and accountability measures around the thing that's easy to measure. But what if those things like regurgitating memories of factual information that's been, or, or procedural information that's been curated by somebody else, right? And you know, what if knowing all that stuff doesn't, doesn't make you a, a, a better person? What if it doesn't help you know what to do in the world? And there's actually excellent evidence that it doesn't. In our development, in our neuroscience, for example, what we're finding is that what actually allows us to predict the growth, the physical growth and the functioning, the change in function of teenagers' brains across years and into young adulthood, which in turn predicts their young, their young adult happiness and how, much, how productive they are, how well they do in school, how much they like their close relationships, how coherent their identity is, Right, how purposeful they feel their life is, you know, really important stuff about people's outcomes. What predicts that is not what they know, it's how they think. It's the dispositions they bring to the world as they engage with complex problems, with open-ended problems without one answer, problems that require multiple perspectives to be able to really appreciate the complexity of what's going on. There is no information out there in the world that we can't go out and get a calculator to, to do for us or look up on Google, right, that, you know, that we're teaching in school. The point is not to stash away a whole lot of information that somebody else decided is what you need to know in order to be called quote unquote successful in this in this context, and then send people out onto the world completely unsuspecting and unable to actually figure out, utilize their skills for anything in the real world. What, what we really need to do is recognize that education is not an efficient process, right? With the structures and the, you know, the mechanisms of delivering opportunities, those can be made efficient, right? The institutions of education can be made efficient, but learning itself is not is not an efficient process. It's a process of the per when it's really meaningful. It's a process of the person engaging from their own positionality in a in an open-ended way in which they are developing skills and dispositions for noticing what's important, for extracting that information and engaging complexly with it, for analyzing it multiple ways, and for becoming emotionally engaged and committed to ideas. And the traditional methods of education that you're talking about are trying to circumvent that process in the service of highly measurable outcomes that ironically don't matter very much, right? But they're easy to measure, 
right? Can you remember this or not? Can you do this or not right now, right here, right? And in the service of, you know, sort of making things happen in a fast, efficient way. I mean, it's like the equivalent of going to young parents, right, whose who's little, you know, seven-month-old baby is trying to rock off their little bottom and, and learn how to crawl and be like, don't, don't, don't help them crawl. Like, get them right on a bicycle. You're never going to crawl again in your life. Totally irrelevant <laughs> skill. You don't need crawling past 12 months of age. So, like, let's just skip it and go straight to bike riding. That there's a useful skill, right? Strap your kid on and hold them up and, and, like, teach them how to ride a bike. Obviously, that's ridiculous because why do kids crawl? They don't crawl because crawling is the skill they're going to need in the real world. It's because crawling is a developmental activity that helps them build the skills, the mind, the brain, the coordination they need to be able to wire up their body and their brain to be able to locomote and balance and engage cognitively over their lifetime, right? And we need to think about these opportunities in school like that, as like opportunities to crawl. The child needs to do it in order to build themselves. You could teach them how to go straight to bike riding by strapping them on, you know, and holding them up and putting training wheels. But what would you be accomplishing? You'd be accomplishing what it what accounts to a circus trick, right? A kid who can look like they're riding a bike, but if you gave them a different bike or asked them to run, they couldn't do it necessarily, right? It's like we just have the wrong aims in mind and we have the wrong understanding of what high quality achievement and success looks like in a developmental setting. I think we really need to start thinking much more seriously about what kinds of thinking are kids doing. And this is what I meant by what does it feel like to think in that system? Does it feel like I am agentically engaging with complex information that I deeply care about that feels relevant to, to me and to the world and to the space of ideas? Do I feel like agency in that space to engage as a scholar and an intellectual and to bring all that I bring, every kind of knowing to trying to parse and understand that complex information, to iteratively revising my own knowledge and my own thinking, right? And that kind of openness to experience. It's not only that our schools don't support that, the kind of schooling that you're talking about actively punishes it. And in the brain, we can also see this. So by focusing children on behavioral outputs, on you know, high quality uh, achievement in school looks like, you know, appropriate behavior in school looks like behaving like this, right? Doing this stuff, acting this way, producing these answers, doesn't really matter what happened inside your head to get them there, just do it, you know, spit it out right now. What you're doing is robbing young people of the opportunity to develop inside themselves the capacities to manage themselves as thinkers, right? By stealing away those opportunities, which for sure are messy, right? They're difficult. They are inefficient. They're not, they don't work the same way every time. They're contents dependent, right? But what you're doing by sort of cleaning all that out is robbing the young person of the opportunity to develop the capacities they need to be able to do that for themselves over time when the, when the structures aren't there to hold it together for them. And in the brain, what we think is that there you can almost think of these systems for learning and thinking in the brain at the, at the biggest level as almost like a teeter-totter, as like a seesaw, we used to call them as kids, right? So it's like a pivot in the middle and a kid sits on either end and it goes up and down and you take turns with your friend, right? On the one side of the seesaw, when you tip in one direction, those are neural networks 
in the brain that are involved in sort of here and now attention, focus, arousal, dig in, behave like this, look like this, you know, manage yourself in this space and move in a goal-directed way toward completion of a task, right? Very necessary that you can do that. But the other side of the seesaw when you tip back is a set of brain systems that are deeply involved in what we call transcendent thinking or constructive internal reflection, I called it in a 2012 paper, right? Which are basically about thinking about things that are not in the immediate physical here and now is the way I describe it. So it's for daydreaming and imagining but and fantasizing, but it's also about imagining possible futures, solving complex problems. You know, it's, it's what Newton did to be able to figure out that gravity was the reason why the moon went by and the reason the apple fell off the tree. You can't see gravity looking at the apple. You have to step back from the perceptual salience of what just happened and think, wait a minute, why is that behaving like that? What is the systems level sort of operational, you know, principles that are undergirding these things I'm observing, but that can't themselves be directly observed. And that is the essence of deep understanding. That is the essence of ethics, right? That is the essence of problem solving in ill-defined domains, like what happens to adults in the real world all the time. It's how you think about historical contexts. It's how you think about possible alternative future outcomes, right? It's all the stuff that isn't right here, right now. And what we think is that a young person's ability to move themselves appropriately between this kind of task-oriented, attention-focused, you know, goal-directed kind of work and this other kind of uh, more freeform, out-of-the-box future-oriented, complex systems-relevant way of thinking, ethical way of thinking, which also is predicated on a, an experience of self, right? If these are systems in the brain that also support consciousness, right? And sort of that subjective sense that, you know, I, I can't prove I'm real, but boy, if you pinch me, it would hurt. And, and if you hated what I'm saying, it would also hurt, right? Like, where does that come from, right? All of that, that brings you as a, as a human into the space of what you're thinking and engaged with working on and doing in school, but also outside of school, that is happening in an alternative set of brain networks. It's heavily supported by a set of brain networks whose activity is directly suppressed by behavior-oriented and appearance-oriented and task completion kinds of settings, right? You can't both be in the soccer game, like one, two, three, watch the ball, Gail goals that way, wait, Johnny's gonna shoot to me, okay, everybody ready, right? You can't be doing that and be wondering and thinking about the deep historical context of the, of the relationships you're building in the game, right? But you need a chance to do both. And if you don't have the opportunity to do both, our data suggests that you're actually not, we actually see in kids' brains that the brain is not growing as effectively. And that translates into less achievement and less well-being as young adults. Yes. Wow. <laughs> It's such a delight to talk to somebody with so sort of, uh, you've got such like clear-eyed, uh, like lucidity that like you can see this whole picture. You can speak with such passion. And I think that, so this, this, I think that we'll come on to in a little while, the thing that you're talking about, about like, you sometimes refer to it as toggling, like switching between like external goal-oriented task stuff and internal stuff. As I understand it, it's like more to do with the, the default mode network of the brain. Yeah, okay. And that's that's really important that toggling, and it seems like that that you put your finger on with that emphasis there. Why this 
top-down, curriculum-focused, behavior super strictly focused, no opt-out, do-now tasks the second you walk into a lesson. It's just all like denying the kids the opportunity to activate their default mode network. And I was sort of thinking, I had a little thought experiment the other day, and I was like, imagine, I've never done this in a lesson, I've never seen it done, certainly, but imagine if you had a thing in a lesson where you've been working on a task for, for 20 minutes, say, and you'd be like, right, kids, put your pens down and literally do nothing for five minutes, just do nothing. And people would probably listen to this and think, well, that's ridiculous. That's a waste of time and so on. But if you, for example, could have like, you know, if those 30 brains were in a brain scanner and you looked at what was happening in those 30 brains as they sat for five minutes doing nothing, you'd be seeing brain regions lighting up all over the place as they start to daydream, as they start to sort of internally digest what's going on, as they start to assimilate, in, 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 what's the word? Not assimilate, what's the, the other Piaget word? Oh, oh, accommodate. Accommodate, and yeah, like just to, to, to gobble these things up and to digest them and to bring to, to sort of to to integrate yeah integrate's a good word to integrate what's happening into yourself into stories and make metaphorical links between other stuff and all of that stuff is really rich but it all happens internally it's one of the reasons that reflection is so important yeah, and so i think can't do that for you. you you know nobody can do that for you yeah it's yeah. just like playing the game of soccer no amount of studying up on the rules is going to make you win the tournament you you actually you need to know the rules sure you need to know the rules but you need to have played the game and experienced what it is like to be in that setting and the game and then the rules become implicit in the way you behave there that's right and and let me just say one other thing the pivot of that seesaw is the regions of the brain that are and this is like the network dynamics literally is the regions of the brain that are involved in physiological regulatory capacity and feeling and regulating your guts and your viscera right this is emotion this is embodied emotion and and so there's also so I just want to emphasize not just a lost opportunity when then the kids are not just sort of given space to move themselves back and forth. You've got to, got to build the muscles to, to wrench yourself back and forth, right? It's difficult to do. Mm. And, and, you know, making kids go back and forth, saying now we're taking five minutes, now we're working, now that, that's also robbing them of the, they need to be able, you need to build the skills for moving yourself in that space appropriately. But the thing is, when we're pushing them to this more outwardly focused task orientation, no excuses, everybody's going to do what you're supposed to be doing right now and look like you're supposed to be looking right now, right, without sort of losing focus on that, what you're actually doing is training up the systems of the brain that are extremely hyper-focused on the here and now. Okay, what does that do? It causes anxiety, okay? It also, it's not like the default mode networks aren't there. It means that the default mode networks are not being actively recruited in the service of complex thinking and connection to yourself. So what happens is people feel purposeless. They have no understanding of why they're doing the things they're doing. And over time, you actually get mental health crises in large proportion of youth. And ironically, it's the youth who are doing best in the system who have the worst crisis, right? This is, and, and just look around, the suicidality in our teenagers in the Western world, right? The rates of depression, the rates of disconnection from school, and of feeling like you don't belong, like or like you do belong, you're extremely good at it, but what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? I mean, how many kids ask, why are we doing this, right? If they're asking that question, your your education experience is not adequate. They should be very, they should really understand for themselves, why are we doing this? Why am I doing this? I absolutely agree. And so far too often the question is, 
because it's on the test or because you might need it at some point in the future, but often there isn't a good reason. And I used to find that as a science teacher, that I would feel very frustrated that I was just unable to have any inroads with some kids. And I was talking about electromagnets or nuclear power stations or whatever it was that was on the curriculum that day. Like they were like, this has got no bearing on my life. You're just like an irrelevant man. And I'm just going to try and my best to ignore you. And like, I only have to see you for three hours a week and I'll just somehow get through this weird experience. And this, I mean, the thing that you mentioned about mental health is so, so, so important to understand that, you know, that at the moment, that this is not some academic discussion. There are kids in the current system who are suffering in unprecedented numbers. We, at the moment, there's people are talking about there being a mental health tsunami. The, the, the youth the mental health services are absolutely overwhelmed. And it sounds like a similar thing is happening over here, like suicidal ideation has increased, like, is, like doubled self-harm. There's something like one in four kids self-harm yeah what is self-harm right what is that that is a child desperate to connect to something real that they have conjured as an experienced emotional feeling and they are so adrift their lives are so controlled by the system and by the accountability measures that the only way they can actually own their own experience is to physically harm themselves and there's some perverse pleasure in actually being able to control their experience for once, right? That, that tells us something very important about the kind of system mm. that, we're, that we're really imposing on kids. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's really powerful, and I absolutely see that. And so it's, it seems like we're in the sort of in the grip of this like of, of like a hyper rationalism where we're we're, we're thinking of like, and even though I think part of the problem is the word cognition like it overemphasizes the importance of cognition and downplays the importance of emotion and sociality. Emotion is seen as something that's messy that gets in the way. And if a child has a mental health problem, for example, for the school that's a problem mainly because that kid isn't learning effectively and they're not going to hit their grades in maths and science and and all of the things that the school is going to get measured on. But for the kids, the most important thing for them to learn is like, how can I stop feeling like this? Like learning about electromagnets and, and nuclear power stations is not at the top of their list of priorities when they're self-harming, you know. And you see these kids coming into your lessons with self-harm scars on their arms. And you're like, right, kids, today we're going to talk about the alkali metals. It's just nuts. Hello, friends. Several of the guests I've had on this podcast have made the excellent point that it's not enough to just rethink education. Actually, we need to do something about it and we need to encourage others to do the same. There are many reasons why we need to see urgent change. One of these, perhaps the most urgent and one that we touch upon in today's episode with Mary Helen, is the fact that we currently find ourselves in the midst of what is increasingly being described as a mental health tsunami. Some people are saying, we need to fund the child and adolescent mental health services better. And this is definitely true. Even prior to the pandemic, the funding of mental health services was woeful. But focusing on increasing funding for young people in crisis is like campaigning to close the barn door long after the horse has bolted. Instead, we should be doing everything in our power to prevent young people getting to the point where they require mental health support services in the first place. To paraphrase Archbishop Desmond Tutu, it's not sufficient to keep pulling people out of the river. At some point, we need to go upstream and figure out why so many are falling in in the first place. We've already seen some small examples of change happening through the podcast. People are doing things differently as a result of these conversations. 
And this is a wonderful thing, but we need to see more, much more, and indeed, we plan to see more. The first thing we need to do in order to bring about change is to assemble, to bring together a diverse community of people from all walks of life all over the planet, young people, parents and carers, mainstream and alternative educators, education researchers, psychologists, policymakers, everyone. The first step is to learn to see one another and to listen to one another's stories and perspectives. This is already happening. A thriving global online community has grown up alongside this podcast, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, which now has around 350 people from about 30 countries at the last count. If you haven't already signed up, you can do so for free by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app on your phone or other gadget and searching for Rethinking Education. There's a link in the show notes. Another way we plan to bring about change is through a series of Rethinking Education conferences to bring together people in real life as well as online. The first conference will be next year, but the plan is that this will be the first of many regional, national, international. The Rethinking Education conferences will not be talking shops. A key theme of these conferences will be what can we do individually and collectively to bring about the changes that we so urgently need to see and how well are we progressing towards realising our goals. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to make all this happen. In fact, it already does. In an attempt to claw back some of the time it takes to put these podcasts together and now outsource the editing to a sound engineer, this means that making the shows now costs less in terms of time, but more in terms of outlay. About $50 an episode, in case you're wondering. If you would like to contribute to the Rethinking Education project to help reshape the way that we educate current and future generations, you can now do so by becoming a patron of the show. You can either make a one-off or a monthly donation by visiting patreon.com forward slash repod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash r-e-p-o-d. There are a few different levels at which you can contribute with associated benefits. If you're interested, you'll find a link in the show notes. And if you aren't able to contribute, that's not a problem. Please continue to listen for free. You can help in other ways, though, by joining the Mighty Network, for example, or by recommending a podcast to a friend or colleague or sharing an episode on social media, or perhaps by giving us a glowing review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a massive help, actually. Again, there are links in the show notes. But if you can afford to buy me a pint or a coffee, or perhaps even a pint of coffee in exchange for your listening pleasure, please do visit patreon.com forward slash repod. Doing so helps pay for someone else to enjoy these conversations for free, and it helps keep the show sustainable for the long term. Thank you so much. Every share, every positive review, and every contribution is greatly appreciated. Now let's get back to today's conversation with Mary Helen Imodino-Yang. Here we arrive very centrally at your work about recognizing and fully understanding the, the, the way that emotions are not just important alongside cognition, but they're absolutely integrated. They're part of cognition. Yeah, absolutely integrated within it. And you, the first diagram in your book is like the overlap between emotion and cognition. And it's like they're almost, it's almost like a perfect circle as, as Venn diagrams go. Like there's very little outside of that circle on either side. 
And so I'd, I'd like, in a while, if we get time, I'd like to ask you about, to take you right back and ask you about your own experience of, of education as a, as a child and so on. But first of all, just as a way in, rather than sort of going straight into talking about, you know, brain networks and stuff, I'm just curious about what was your entry point into this field? Was, was it something that started as soon as you, when you became a teacher? Like, what was it that sparked your interest that made you start asking questions about the role of emotions in learning? And how did you sort of realize that this was going to be your field of study? <laughs> That's a long story. Um, yeah, I'll answer that question. Can I answer something else first? Yeah, go for it. Um, I, I just want to say, especially given the context that you're presenting to me about, you know, the cognitive science, so to speak, really ruling, you know, the education system where you're at. And, and here's the thing, you know, it's very important as scientists that we stop to think about how our methods and our theorizing have not only enabled us to discover things, but have limited how we understand things, right? You, you have to unpack your assumptions as a scientist. And so how did we get to this place where cognition and affect are separate things, even though we don't see that in the brain, right? It's because we have inadvertently, in the interest of de developing this quote-unquote scientific method, we have standardized our protocols and the cultures of the young of the people in the experiments and the data and everything. So if it's not a good day for you or you're sleepy today or you're sad today, don't do the experiment, right? We're only going to do it if, if you look exactly like, right, you're, you, we want you to. And then we pretend like we're studying pure cognition, but what you're actually studying is cognition when you hold emotion and culture and development relatively constant. So we have just, as a scientific field, really built a false understanding of the mind around these dichotomous categories that actually do not exist, except in the most extreme circumstances where you really, really have to control one dimension, the affective dimension or the cognitive dimension, and then let the other one vary. And then we pretend like that's what's happening in the real world all the time. And that is on the scientists. That is um, a philosophical and scientific error in the way that we conceptualize the mind. Okay, now I'll step back to the story <laughs> of myself as a child. You know, uh, where do I start? All I can say as a kid is mostly my memories of school as a young child are are terribly stressful. I don't have learning disabilities that I know of. I didn't have you know, pro problems doing the work, but I was deeply disconnected from what was going on and deeply stressed by that because I cared very much about doing well and about being a good child and everybody liking me. But I mean, it's, it's hard to explain the magnitude of relief that I felt on Friday afternoons and the level of dread on Sunday evenings, right, as I was engaging with school, I, it, let me just say. Luckily for me, I came from a privileged family of professional parents where I lived in the woods in the middle of nowhere. I had a farm, I had animals, I had horses, I was teaching kids riding, I was running this entire farm, we were feeding ourselves off the farm, we were like doing all this other kind of stuff. I had a piano and I loved music and I played music but I drove my piano teacher's nuts because I never played what they told me. I would go off and learn something far too hard that I shouldn't be able to play, and I would make myself learn it because I wanted to. And then I'd come back and be like, look what I can do. And they'd just be like, oh, man, like you're supposed to be learning this, and now you've missed skills. Like I was a disaster for teachers, right? I tried to be good. I was not a bad child or a, or a child who tried to you know, push boundaries. I very, very much wanted to be liked and to be a good child but um, and well-behaved, but I, I just couldn't fit myself into those structures. And it finally got to the point in sixth grade when I was 11 or so, 
that it, it, I just couldn't go. I could not go to school anymore. I, I stopped going. I, was, I couldn't have explained it. I didn't have the maturity to conceptualize it. I just didn't get up in the morning anymore. And I luckily, luckily, I had a grandma and a mom who noticed, you know, and, my, you know, and, and were like, my aunt's not going to school. What are we going to do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. That's, that's incredible in itself. Sorry to interrupt you, but... That's incredible in itself because like there's so many there's so much pressure on parents to keep their kids in school. There's lots of shame attached to kids not going to school. So it's very unique and quite incredible well, I think that you had that privilege. I was in a position where my parents could go try to advocate for me at the school and when they did and the school responded the way that they did, they could see just how dangerous a place this was for me physically as well as, as emotionally. And they realized I was right. And they had the resources to be able to let me be at home, run the farm, play my music, teach all the neighborhood kids horseback riding, which you know was an incredibly empowering experience to me now looking back. I still remember thinking how powerful it was to interact with these big, big animals and to take small children who were really frightened of them and help them understand the psychology of the animals so that they could work with them, right? And, you know, and they were able to let me stay out of school, which was a disaster for the school department. I mean, they were, they were like, yeah, but they knew they were wrong, right? So they were frightened, you know, of suits and things like that. So they didn't really push. And then the next year I was able to be moved into a more progressive private school that my parents had to pay for. I know that the, the way those are labeled in England is, is different from the U.S., but basically my parents paid to send me to a different school. And when I got there, I really began to thrive. But even there, you know, after two years, it started to get like, all right, I, I've done this sitting classes thing. I just got very, I, I was, I kind of was almost like mitigating my own exposure to school. I couldn't take too much of it. I would go off. I went to France and I stayed with a the family there and I went to school there for a couple months. I went to Russia. I went to Ireland. I went to, you know, Trinity College in Dublin to a, to a, to a program there for a few months. I kind of just was like, I need to experience the world. I need to, I need to engage with people. I need to find out who I am. I need to think about real things. And that was, that was me. And that's something that not all children have the opportunity to be able to do. You know, I did it on the cheap to be sure, but, uh, but I was able to do that because of the kind of background that I came from. And that is not not a realistic option for most children. Um, and if I had been in a different kind of situation, I don't know how I would have turned out. I, I don't know that I would have done as well as I have. But over time, as I moved through the education system, I mean, I was able to do, I was able to kind of make it work for me as best I could. And I got to university and then, you know, again, was just fascinated by science, by natural sciences, but I kind of took a year of every science, right? I took a year of biology, a year of physics, a year of astronomy, a year of, you know, physical anthropology. Like I was moving around, but also made, I majored in French literature, right? I was just sort of like, you know, back off, let me explore the world a little bit, you know? And, um, and I discovered developmental psychology as a junior in college and was just fascinated by the ways that scientists could systematically study what infants do and know, right? And I, I thought, now, now there is something amazing, right? We can actually use systematic observations to start to figure out what is going on that's producing these patterns, right? And I was totally enthralled by that 
But I also wanted to go abroad and do things. So I decided, and very good decision, I think, that I could either double major in developmental psychology and French, or I could take time and go um, to Kenya and live there and learn Swahili and um, study boat building, which I was also very interested in. Again, but it was these notions. I was very interested in all kinds of handicrafts that people traditionally do, especially with wood and especially with boats but and furniture, but, you know, that people pass on. I was really interested in these funnies who lived on the, the coast of East Africa who were illiterate, right, but who build these 50-foot-long dows without power tools by hand out of mango grove wood, which is totally not straight. It's all knotty and crooked. How do they build 50-feet-long <laughs> sailboats that go straight, right? I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to understand how, how does this happen? What are, you know, How is knowledge built in social spaces and things? And I just kind of put myself in it. I apprenticed myself to a fundie in East Africa who thought I was nuts, you know, as a girl, as a student, as a white person, as an American, like I was just an out on all, always. But over time, we started to know each other and respect each other. And he actually really invested in teaching me, in teaching me boat building and, and helping me learn. And I had an amazing, really life-changing experience working in Kenya for those eight months on boat building and documenting traditional dial construction and stuff. Yeah, it's a long story, but um, anyway, so you come back and I was working as a cabinet maker in the U.S. because I wanted to study you know, really fine furniture making and things as, you know, but I was also torn because I was really interested in anthropology and developmental psychology, but I couldn't really pull those two together. I didn't know what to do as a field. And just by chance, I was working because I, you know, the graduate school that was teaching um, really fine quality historical styles of woodworking and museum work and things like that said I didn't have enough experience with Western style stuff. So I apprenticed myself to have in a cabinet shop and I started working full time as a cabinet making apprentice after after I graduated university. So I graduated from a, like a, an Ivy League university, let me just be clear. Like, you know, I'm moving between these worlds. <laughs> um, and I, I cut my hand on a job site by accident that was I was helping to install these custom made bookshelves and stuff. And there was a window that was rotten and it broke and, you know, sliced my hand as it fell. Anyway, so long story short, I, this was an excellent opportunity for me to kind of step back because I was realizing I'm in this now, but I'm kind of bored with it. Like there's not enough science here. You know, like I, I was almost like a living the science I wanted to do as compared to really, you know, conducting systematics. It was almost like I was putting myself in cultural spaces, like, you know, like a, a traditional woodworking shop in the U.S. where women were not, right? Just to be clear, I was the only woman there, right? You know, and, and, and sort of living that and fitting myself in and just kind of getting an intuitive sense of how does culture shape knowledge, right? But I couldn't have said it that way, but that's what I was doing. I, I probably would have said some of that, actually. And so then I, I decided, well, you know what? I'm seeing all these. I need to support myself. I'm 23 years old. I've got a cut hand. I can't operate power machinery. So what am I going to do with myself? So I thought, well, I'm seeing these schools in Boston, in, in urban, you know, South Boston, who are desperate for, for teachers. They're not, you know, they're we're a week and two weeks into the school year, and they still don't have a science teacher for this, you know, they're still missing one teacher and stuff. So I applied and, you know, blah, 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 long story. I convinced the Massachusetts Department of Education by literally sending them my transcripts from undergrad and sending them my notes and my 10, they're like, look, these are the biology experiments I did. Here's the stuff. I could teach seventh grade, right? And they were like, you know what, you're right. You, you really could. You have a very expensive science background. So I started teaching there, and the school district there was fantastic. They really did support me and really wrap around me. And my, I was put in a team of other teachers who helped me learn what to do. 
Um, but in, in doing that, I, I landed myself in a full-time teaching position, teaching seventh grade, which is like 13 years old, 12, 13, and um, teaching science. And it just so happened that it was exactly as this school district, first of all, had had to close down their middle school, the seventh and eighth grade had been pushed into the upper school, into the ninth to 12th grade, and crammed and was overcrowded because they couldn't afford to keep the middle school open. And also the school was facing reaccreditation, was worried about losing their accreditation as a public school because they their curriculum didn't match the new state standards, which were integrated science. So rather than doing life science in seventh grade and you know physical science in eighth grade and earth science in ninth grade like that, they wanted integrated science that was uh, more interdisciplinary all the way through the grades. So I still remember raising my hand at a faculty meeting and being like, I will take the lead. I'm writing that curriculum. And they were like, oh my God, can somebody help this little twerp who doesn't know what she's doing? But I, I you know, I, I love that effort. I worked with teachers from the upper grades and I basically wrote the curriculum and I went back to my college professors and got information from them and artifacts and all kinds of cool stuff and wrote a curriculum that was interdisciplinary for the district that really brought together, you know, wove in, you know, let's study this, the sun and nuclear reactions and then atoms and then chemistry and then photosynthesis and biology and like how are these things all related in a system and right and then, you know, like so built a whole curriculum like that that sort of wove its way through this exploration of natural the natural world and brought, you know, sort of the children and us and human evolution and everything into it. And also, just by chance, the district that I was working in turned out to be like the second most diverse district in the U.S. at that time or something. It had like 81 different languages spoken among the students in 1,100 students. Like it was an extremely diverse district. And this was a time period when there were kids immigrating from all over the world and kind of landing in these suburbs of U.S. cities. They were coming from Rwanda. This was just past the genocide. Uh, they were coming from Haiti. They were coming from Croatia. They were coming from Malaysia and Malawi. Like there were just people, very, very people from very different cultural backgrounds, all sort of converging on this district. And the kids were, you know, desperately trying to figure out who am I? Why do I look like this? Why do other people look like that? You know, what are we doing this for? What happened to me that I live in this new place now? And I just found it absolutely fascinating the way that the kids were glomming onto these scientific ways of knowing, you know, and these different ways of thinking about the natural world and observing and trying to build theories, right? And 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 trying to, uh, you know, reconcile different kinds of evidence and things like that. And they were bringing that to bear on their own immigration experiences and on trying to understand who they were and why there was racial diversity and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I became totally fascinated by that problem space and realized I had never thought I would ever want to be back in traditional public schooling again. But uh, but I, I totally turned around and thought, this is the problem space that I've been looking for that I could really dedicate my, my life work to. It's it's scientific, it's naturalistic, it's it's evolutionary, it's cognitive and affective and social and cultural, and it, it's being applied and utilized in a real world, extremely important problem space, which is education. And so I went back to grad school at Harvard to start to study that as a master's student. I did some night school and stuff to kind of catch up on coursework and kind of move myself into a new field. And once I got there as a master's student, I realized I can't do this <laughs> in a master's program. And I and, and so my mentors were inviting me to continue. So I, I decided to do a doctorate in, in education and human development psychology at Harvard. And, and as I moved through that, 
a program studying social and emotional and cognitive development in this very um, you know situated way um, and, and developing and learning skills for for understanding and and making models out of human behavior and trying to figure out how do people think and feel and how does development in, in thoughts and feelings happen in a social space and how is that supported by opportunities like the ones that education and, and other kinds of community education can provide. I, I realized that, you know, as educators, we're, we're watching these behaviors, we're looking at these outcome measures, we're, we're observing deeply, but wouldn't it be useful to kind of constrain the model we're building based on also what we know about how brain development is happening, right? Because all of these observes, uh, observational behaviors that we're measuring these are coming out of the person's body and brain, right? And so what would cultural effects on the brain, what would understanding brain development and emotion in the brain and sociality and social processing, uh, what would that do to help us constrain the theories we were building and the things we were understanding in education? And I realized very quickly there was very little known about it at that point. And so from there, I went to do, uh, I was extremely lucky to, to be invited to um, to study affective and social neuroscience with Antonio and Hannah Damasio, who are kind of the scientists who in many ways kind of derived or invented the modern neurobiological study of emotion in humans. And together we set out to try to figure out how we might study so-called social emotions, um, the emotions we feel in a social space, how people feel compassion and inspiration and things like that. And so I did a postdoc for two and a half years intensively and then began to develop my own methods to bring together these kind of educational developmental ways of understanding, you know, qualitative interviews, uh, situated dynamics of kids learning and thinking and feeling together with brain development. And so that's what I do now. I do this very interdisciplinary research that brings together these different methods to try to build these transdisciplinary theor theoretical understanding of how young people grow, how adults and young people interact in ways that shape the people in the situation and what that means for the way we would design effective and humane educational opportunities and experiences for teachers and students. Mm, yeah, thank you. And, and so the first chapter in the book is, is of a paper that you wrote with Antonio Damasio that we, f we feel, therefore we learn. And I'd just like to share, if I may, just the opening and then the closing sentences from that chapter. And I wonder if you could then sort of just like summarize, I mean, we've already touched on some of this stuff, but so the opening sentence is, recent advances in the neuroscience of emotions are highlighting connections between cognitive and emotional functions that have the potential to revolutionize our understanding of learning in the context of schools. Um, so it's a bold, it's a bold opening statement. And then the, the closing statement is even, is even bolder in the sense that the final sentence is when educators fail to appreciate the importance of students' emotions, they fail to appreciate a critical force in students' learning. One could argue, in fact, that they fail to appreciate the very reason that students learn at all. And so in that chapter, it sort of starts out with the work that Damasio had done around like brain injured patients and stroke patients and like observing what they can and can't do. Can you just sort of like try to sort of capture the essence of like how how did the field move from studying these brain injured patients to making these very bold claims about you know how we need to turn education we need to undertake a Copernican revolution as it were. Yeah, I'm not sure the field moved. I moved. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know I'm joking, but um, yeah. So let me just say like just from a human perspective, like that paper was massively difficult for me to write. That was the first paper I wrote as a postdoc with Antonio. 
And I remember him saying, like, are you done yet? Like, what, what are you working on? I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out, like, this must be relevant, right? All this stuff with these stroke patients I mean, must be relevant. But what, what does it really tell us? Like, where are we jumping off from to found this new way of thinking about development and the brain and education? And so it was, it was something that, to me, was a very forward-thinking, forward-looking document. It was me trying to figure out why am I doing this work, right? And what is the actual potential here? I see. And you can you can see that as you go through the book, you can see how you're thinking. I know that later on, it sort of goes back and forth a little bit on the timeline, but you can see how your how your writing has become firmer. And, and also in the in the foreword to the book, Howard Gardner says that, that up until that point, at least you've been quite circumspect in the claims that you make for education. But the book was published five years ago. And I know that since then... Yeah, I'm getting more bold. I, I really am getting more confident these things are true and, yeah, and that yeah. we should attend to them. I, I, I am. Absolutely. I, was quite, I was quite skeptical at first, right? You don't want to just walk in and, and start shoving your weight around because you've got some data, right? You don't know what those data mean. I, again, you could be standing under that streetlight, right? And I've been trying to walk down the dark alley, right? And I'm I'm starting to figure out a little bit what where the where the things are you bump into back there, right? And I'm doing that a lot by really actively collaborating with teachers and kids in schools. So that's that's part of the part of the work. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear about that. And you work with young people as co-researchers as well, and as scientists. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that as well. Okay, so can you crystallize the sort of the development of your thinking over throughout, like since you sort of first realized that this was the this was the avenue for you, to the point that you're up to now? Yeah, I mean, I think what we what Antonio and I and Hannah first set out to test as a very basic hypothesis was, so Antonio and Hannah had shown it very, very cleverly, right? They had shown through, you know, decades of work with stroke patients, basically, elderly people mainly who had had strokes in Iowa, right, which is a U.S. state, right, and come to the university hospital system and seen by the neurologist there where Antonio and Hannah were, were working. That They had documented something very curious, and that is that when people's emotions became impaired, their cognition also became impaired in ways that really revealed that emotion was not interfering with cognition, but was organizing and supporting it and steering it. We talked about, I think, a boat and the emotion being the rudder, right? Yeah. And cognition being the boat, kind of. And what they realized was that emotions are a critical piece of kind of being able to enact cognition in a way that is actually adaptive to the context, that actually is useful here and now. And they showed with, you know, they had several patients who are, who are particularly famous for these very interesting profiles where, you know, one in particular, he had, you know, he maintained this extremely high IQ on IQ tests, right? Extremely high, like 140 or something like that, you know, four standard deviations above the norm. And previous to his brain injury, he had been, you know, the town, the town mayor, like he was elected mayor by, you know, he was happily married, you know, he was like, he was a very socially successful person and an extremely bright businessman. And after this lesion in, you know, his venture media for frontal cortex kind of pushed on and you know kind of damaged that section of his brain what they found was that his his IQ scores and things like that were unchanged but his ability to use his cognition in ways that made sense was deeply impaired and he ended up having to be institutionalized because he was a danger to himself and other people right and even quote unquote rational decisions like what to invest in from a business perspective you would think that would get better 
if you took emotion out of it. But when you tried to take emotion out of it, he became, you know, very short-sighted. He couldn't see long-term implications. He couldn't sort of sense risk anymore. Um, he was just completely oblivious to dangerous things and dangerous people um, who were deceiving him, for example. And it just, it was a, a first look at it from a sort of systematic scientific investigation of a clinical case in which, you know, he was documenting the codependence of emotion and cognition in a person's ability to manage themselves in the, in the world. So I was building from there. And now where I've come to is somewhere that's definitely built from the work of, of Antonio and Hannah Damasio, built from a lot of other work in the field, but also brings in work from, you know, and ideas that I take from Howard Gardner about the ways in which people build intelligence and good work, work from my advisor in graduate school, who sadly passed away in the pandemic, Kurt Fisher, who used to say to me, Mary Helen, emotion and cognition are two sides of the same coin, right? And another thing he used to say, which comes back to me a lot now is explain variation, Mary Helen, don't explain it away, right? Use variation as a source of information about how things work. And so much in traditional science, we put variation, including emotional variation, cultural variation, situational variation, and just what appears to be quote unquote random variation, right? Across people, we relegate that to mess or noise. And we try to find the quote unquote significant effect that's, you know, that, that, that is reliable no matter what, right? And he said, and this is brilliant, go back and look at how can you predict and explain that variation? Where does it emerge from? What does it result in? How does it come to be? And is there something that is actually instrumental in that variation that could give you insight into what's going on developmentally? And so that's where I've landed with this work. So I, I have come back to, I've developed a series of protocols that I use that have, you know, we're always improving and changing them and adapting them to new contexts and to use new kinds of methods, new kinds of neuroimaging methods, new psychophysiological recording methods, new behavioral methods and interview protocols and stimuli and things like that. But what we basically do, the way I basically do this work is I use my human development <laughs> training, right? To sit with people and to observe, to, to observe the way that they make meaning out of the things that they witness. How do they think about the world? How do they feel in the world? And what is the way that they construct understanding of what's happening? And then use that together with neuroimaging protocols that ask people to, again, you know, think about complex real things for us, right? And tell us how you're feeling about them. And so we combine these in-depth interviews open-ended interviews with teenagers, with young adults, with people in China and USC, uh, University of Southern California, Beijing, Normal University, and all this stuff, like looking to try to incite variation, to try to lift up the variability in how people construct experience, conscious experience and narratives, and look at how that variability relates to the opportunities they've had, the cultures they've been exposed to, the biological sort of predispositions they bring, and how it's shaped by and is appearing to actively shape the development of themselves psychologically as well as neurobiologically. So the ways, for example, that young people, teenagers, you know, interact with complex stories about real teenagers from around the world, right? We show them a, a video of, you know, Malala in Pakistan when she's 12, right? Before she was famous and all that. And basically said, you know, how does her story make you feel? You know, the ways that kids answer that question, the, the dispositions they bring to answering it, not the fancy words they use, but the dispositions they bring to answering that. Are they 
do they react only to Malala in that situation and say things like, oh, I feel so bad for her, that's so unfair, I wish I could help her, I, I hope she does okay, right? Or do they also say things like, you know, it makes me also realize that education is a human right. I, I have been going to school my whole life and, you know, sometimes I want to, sometimes I don't, but I never realized that, you know, some places people can't do that. That's not right. I should leverage my opportunities better. I, I should use what I've got to be able to maybe do something about that, right? And they start learning lessons for themselves yeah, like meaning meaning making. Meaning making. And and what we show, which is really like jaw dropping, I think, is that over time kids' styles of meaning making above and beyond IQ, you know, verbal IQ, spatial IQ, like we're measuring these standard measures of IQ. IQ predicts brain development. We've known it for a long time, but in like the medial temporal lobes, the part of the brain that to deal with basically semantic memory and which recall. Okay. But the ways kids make meaning, the dispositions they bring to this above and beyond IQ. So in other words, the meaning making you do that's kind of beyond what you should easily be able to do based on how smart you are is a way to think about it, right? How much do you push yourself to really think beyond what's easy for you to what this really means? That is growing the brain all over the place. <laughs> that is a major factor. And we see it like robustly in the structure of the brain two years later when kids come back, comparing kids to themselves two years prior, we can predict how much growth there's going to be based on the degree to which they engage with this kind of, of disposition toward kind of bigger, more transcendent meaning. Like, are they curious? Do they engage deeply with it? And what's really powerful, we have a paper that's in press right now. It's just about to come out in, in the journal Social Cognitive Affective Neuroscience with low SES, you know, low socioeconomic status, teenagers from immigrant backgrounds in inner city Los Angeles, right? But kids who are doing well in school, they're passing all their classes, they're not in trouble, right? You know, they're just your average, like, good kids, okay? Uh, so to speak, right? We talked to those 65 of those kids about, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, about how they feel about the stories, how they feel about themselves, their communities. The way they talk allows us to actually show that when they get in the scanner, they're going to activate these, these more default mode systems more or these more executive control systems more. And the degree to which they do that is associated with their relationships in the world, with how they feel about themselves over time. But more than that, when we control for IQ, the effects get even more robust. In other words, IQ is sort of making it easy to do some of that. But when you go beyond what your IQ says would be straightforward for you, that's when we really see growth. And what we can show is that the stronger kids experience emotion in the context of this abstract transcendent thinking, the more robust the brain activations are and the more they grow over time. So emotion in the context of ideas is a deeply powerful motivator of thinking, of effortful thinking, which in turn appears to grow kids both psychologically, they report liking themselves better, doing better, they like their partners better, their, their lives feel what they, what they always wanted, right? And their brains actually grow thicker when they are experiencing emotion in the context of these, of these complex issues. When they experience a lot of emotion in the context of these more concrete, direct, empathic ways of reacting, like, oh, poor Malala, poor her, I wish I could help her, that's so sad, that's really unfair, right? That is associated with having good relationships, but the more emotion there doesn't do anything to, the, to what we can see in the brain, it's just more activity everywhere, and it doesn't grow you over time. And so you, you describe this as the difference between concrete and abstract. So those responses to the Malala story saying like, oh, poor Malala, I hope she's okay. That's like a concrete response. And the, and the more abstract yeah, things. It's a useful response. It's a totally appropriate response. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But like when you've got time to reflect more on what it means to you, and I know that you've done similar work around, you know, like young people who are growing up in areas where there's lots of gang violence. Yeah, that's just it. And there's the same sort of distinction between, you know, like the the concrete interpretation of that, which is like they get angry, they lose their they lose their temper, they commit a crime, and then the wider the wider thing, they see more sort of, you know, the society, the cycles of violence and the cycles of deprivation that underpin gang violence. And so, just to be clear, because I really want this is this is absolutely at the heart yes, of, of of it, isn't it? And this links back to the Copernican Revolution and putting the the young person's thought and experience and meaning making at the center of the educational experience. So I just really want to like highlight this in neon as much as i can and make sure that we that we get this right so what you're saying to as i understand it is that the more to the extent to which we can encourage and enable kids to have those abstract type thoughts to to make meaning around these ideas that they're encountering care about it like to, to think deeply about issues they care about and to learn how to care about complex issues, yeah. learn how to feel about mathematical uh, algorithms, learn how to be interested in historical context, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, so it's not just learning more about, the, for example, the context in which crime exists or Malala, you know, the Taliban exists or whatever, but relating this to your own experience of yourself as well, that this predict the extent to which young, young people are able to do this predicts their not only their brain development, but also a whole range of other outcomes. And you were talking about social, emotional outcomes. Uh, what is it specific, precisely that you're saying that it predicts? Um, so I just want to first want to say a big shout out to my doctoral student who did this work as her dissertation, uh, Rebecca Gottlieb. And, you know, what Rebecca showed was that five years after the first uh, time we sat with these kids when they were 14 to 16 years old. So five years later, they were 19 to 21 years old, so to speak. She predicts so robustly it is a lot of things, like how much a kid says they like themselves and like their life, like their close relationships. It also predicts how well they're doing in school or work, whatever the, it is that they're doing. But really importantly, it predicts what Erickson in like 1968 called ego integrity, right? Which is, is basically the degree to which young people feel like, you know, by their own description, they feel like, you know, I know who I am. I feel like I have a purpose and a place in this world and I'm here for a reason and I'm engaging with my world like I really, you know, mean it. As compared to the degree to which um, it also, you know, it negatively predicts the degree to which kids endorse statements like, you know what, I just kind of go along with what everybody else thinks is right. I, I don't really, I don't really think a lot about it. I don't really know what I think. Like, I just kind of go along with the crowd and that's good enough, right? Which we know is associated with all kinds of bad outcomes, with anxiety, with depression, and with, you know, bad decision-making and not doing well in, you know, why would you really work hard if you don't care? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's predicting these very important psychosocial outcomes that are really arguably the ones that our education system ought to be caring the most about. Because if you've got a young person who feels purposeful, who's willing to work hard, who's deeply engaged, who's got healthy relationships in their life, they can go and learn whatever it is they need to learn that's coming up in their life now to be successful and a productive member of the economy and all that. But if they've got all the knowledge that was relevant 10 years ago or five years ago, but no disposition for learning now and no reason to engage purposefully with, you know, with, you know, meaningful activity, then why would they? What does that do for you? So this just brings it back around to the deep irony in the reworking of the British education system around these traditional and behavioral aims, these no excuses and stuff. You're trying to aim for an outcome 
which is actually not the one that you should be valuing. And ironically, you're undermining the aims you want to achieve by trying to, you know, get straight to them without actually supporting young people in, you know, moving themselves through the process of growing themselves into the kind of thinkers that you would help that your education system would produce. I mean, it's very much into like going back to those toddlers and saying, take your baby and strap them on a bicycle, right? But, you know, if your aim is to produce a high level athlete, you know, skipping crawling is really not going to get you there, right? Even though it looks right now like the kid is, is moving by their own developmental timeline, they're doing what they think is what's important. It has nothing to do with what adults do, right? None of us crawl around. Um, but but th this is somehow what they're driven to do in order to grow themselves. We need to support young people in owning their own growth. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, my goodness, my head is spinning at the moment. There are so many implications to this. Uh, I mean, one thing that just occurs to me, just as a side note, really, is that like, the, like strategically, it's going to be really hard. Like, if your aim is these easy to measure outcomes in exams and retention and retrieval and so on, I don't doubt that sitting kids in rows, not giving them any wriggle room, making them very externally goal focused, drilling them and so on. As unpleasant as, as that might be in terms of for, for people to under, to, who understand the, you know, the, the importance of, of, of emotion and sociality and so on, like, I don't doubt that that's the most efficient way to get good results. And some of these schools... In the short term. Exactly, in the short term. But some of these schools that are adopting these very, very strict approaches to behavior and pedagogy are getting incredible results like compared to other schools with similar, with similar intakes. And so to win the argument is going to be really hard because they are the me they are the measures that count and we treasure what we measure, right? Everybody's in this zero-sum game, like competing for the certain number of grades, more or less, that's how it works. And so it's going to be a it's going to be a, it's going to be a struggle to wrestle back the control of the narrative from an approach to education which does succeed within the terms on which it's competing, which is, like you say, short-term cognitive gains that are forgotten two weeks after the exam has finished, say. So let me just, that's sort of a side note, really, but it's something that is a very serious strategic problem, I think, which is going to take some thinking through. But to come back to this concrete versus abstract thing, like, is, like have you sort of done research as well around the extent to which, like, is it just that some kids like tend to think concretely about things and other kids tend to, to think abstractly about things or or is it is it possible to teach kids how to do this what kinds of things can we do in schools that will enable this greater abstraction meaning making yeah, that's a great question and we have done work that actually shows that we can instrumentally increase kids' propensities to think abstractly across even an eight-week intervention. And there's also a long history of so-called progressive, quote-unquote, schools in low SES areas and high SES areas that have amazing long-term results, right? So the schools you're talking about, the results that you're getting with these really uh, behaviorally rigid ways of teaching are better than not having any plan, right? And, and flailing around. So you get short-term you get short-term results that are better than you would have gotten. Um, but over time, those kids do not grow up to be happy, productive people more often than the other kids, right? It's, it's, it doesn't work well. And in the U.S., we, we now have decades of work from, you know, consortia of schools that are working around other methods of accountability of, of learning, like the performance-based assessment consortium schools in New York City, for example, that have been around for, for decades, that do amazing work really helping young people think this way. So what was the question? <laughs> I forgot the question you asked. 
it was can we teach kids how to how to learn abstractly? Can we teach people right? So like even during so first of all we're seeing and right now we're testing. Do kids think more abstractly? Do they have different sort of so-called intellectual virtues? in these different kinds of educational environments. And we are actively testing that now and doing that, that work. That's like funded research is very important. But also we did a, a series of eight week interventions by partnering with a group called Sages and Seekers, which is a, like a, a wonderful after school group, right? After school programming group that, that we worked with to adapt their, their, their curriculum. And what, what they basically do is bring together elderly people and, uh, you know, like seniors and, and teenagers from the same neighborhoods. And they do these really fun activities where the, ki the kids and the elderly people kind of speed date, they all get to know each other. And then they, they partner up themselves and pick a partner to work with over this eight week intervention. And over the course of the, course of the curriculum, they basically, it's not, a, it's not a mentoring program. Both the elderly person and the teenager are working together on building a life story, right? And so the elderly people are working on a generative story of the meaning of the life they've lived and what they've done and given to the world and what they could give back now. And the, the teenager is imagining the future life that they want to live and who they want to be as an adult and building that out. And the two of them are supporting each other in this journey together. And what we find is that, and these are inner city, low SES kids, some of them are doing very badly in school, right? What we, what we find is that kids, just little video diaries they do every week about how they're thinking and feeling when they get out of that session, right? They, be, they start very concrete, right? They start saying things like, oh, I really like Louise. She's so nice and funny and like, I, she makes me feel happy. And she, you know what I mean? And by the end, they're thinking about, wait, Louise is helping me see how I need to really not get derailed by other people's expectations. I need to keep my eye on the prize and think about what am I actually trying to achieve, right? They get more and more abstract. And then over time, by the end, they write these lovely tributes to their sage, right? That the seekers do, the teenagers do, that basically explores how it is they've developed themselves in that person's presence and through that person's, through a relationship with that person. So, you know, this is just one example. And I should say that the degree to which kids adopt this more abstract way of conceptualizing mediates statistically. It sort of statistically explains increases in their reported purpose in life, in their well-being, in their persistence in school, in their resilience, right? These are kids from very underprivileged circumstances. So it's just one example showing that indeed we can instrumentally influence this propensity by exposing kids to opportunities for safe engagement with deep thinking in the context of a caring relationship with an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That I should say is the work of Rodrigo Riveros, who was also one of my PhD students. Okay, thank you. And this is making me reflect a lot on my own work. As I mentioned, I've been immersed in this world of learning to learn. It was what my PhD was on. And this was a taught curriculum. We had 20% of the curriculum time dedicated to this. There was lots of focus on the sorts of things that you're talking about, project-based learning, where the kids had lots of agency, autonomy, freedom to explore things that they that they saw as being as meaningful there's lots of emphasis on doing really boil down to three to three ideas to metacognition to helping them to reflect on their thought processes and to, to monitor and control them self-regulation monitoring and controlling their feelings physical and emotional feelings and their behaviors and oracy was the other big one and so i think that the metacognition and self-regulation was the you know the default mode stuff they're they're getting the time and the the, the space within the school day to reflect yeah and sort of engaging with the people 
deeper reflection and not just do, 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 look yeah. like this, behave like that, right? Yeah, and, and the oracy was, you know, where we, I don't know if that's a word where you're from, it's like what we refer to as speaking and listening. Yeah, it's like self-expression. Yeah, and that's the, there's the sociality bit, and we would have philosophical inquiries where they were ex- discussing, you know, big, big, important ideas that they had chosen to discuss, and so on. So I can see that this you're, you're like retrospectively providing the theoretical framework that I didn't have at the time, or the neuro, neurobiological framework as to why this stuff makes such sense. So for now, Willingham, we mentioned briefly earlier, I'd be interested to hear your, your connection with him. But in his in the recent he recently rewrote aspects of his book, Why Don't Students Like School? And in and he asked the question towards the end of one of the chapters, and it says, emotion leads to better memory, but intentionally inducing emotions in students to help them remember feels manipulative. Is there a way to use emotion in the classroom? So I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that. Like, do you, do you agree that this is a problem? Is emotion in the service of memory? Like, how, how do you square this circle if you even see this as a circle that needs squaring? Yeah. Okay. So that that stems. That there's a place where I think the neural the neural data can really help us understand. Okay. So it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago that emotion in the context of concrete, context dependent, outcome oriented thinking is different than emotion in the context of abstract transcendent, deeper ethical thinking, okay? And they they play out differently in the mind and brain and they have a different impact on learning. So here's the basic thing. Emotion strengthens memory. And what's critical about that is that emotion, basically emotion strengthens memory for what you're having emotion about. So if you are having emotion about short-term outcomes and somebody else's judgment of whether you were right or wrong, whether you won the game or failed, whether you, right, all that, then that is what you will remember. And you will remember it more poignantly if your teacher finds ways to really induce emotion about it. And that's kind of manipulative, but it's sometimes done and it can be useful as a tool, right? If emotion is steering memory and we really want to promote deep learning and meaningful personal and intellectual development and growth about concepts and ideas, the key thing is that we need an education to shift our teachers and students' emotions from emotions about outcomes to emotions about ideas. And that's the key thing. Helping young people build an emotional propensity to engage deeply with complex disciplinary ideas. Yeah, that doesn't feel manipulative. Right, a triangle and how that applies in the world to building or right, whatever it is, right? When you deeply understand something, that produces a very internally generated kind of emotion that builds what we think is associated in the brain with, instead of semantic memory, right, memory for facts or procedural memory, memory for how to do something, memory that's called episodic, memory that connects to who you are as a person, that is sort of a lived experience that you are in. So an example I like to use to sort of help people intuitively understand. So a guy named Dan Schachter, who's a really famous psychologist, did a really interesting uh, experiment, you know, that he, you know, decades ago now, where he he asked people to, you know, answer the question, you know, how many windows are in your living room, right? And and most people can answer that question, and most people report that the way they answered the question was by imagining they were in their living room and walking around and counting. 
nobody, unless you just bought drapes last week or, or like are in some weird situation like that, would you actually know and have memorized the semantic answer to that question is five, right? In, fa in fact, you've done something much more clever by just living in the living room and experiencing your life richly and all that entails in that living room, you then can reconjure in your own mind, in the default mode, right? In the mind, the experience of being there, you can imagine it, you can put yourself in there, and then you can solve any kind of problem that's relevant to those experiences you've had. And that's the difference. We need to find ways to help kids live in the living room of math, of chemistry, right? Of history, of social justice, right? And then you can go back into that space in your mind's eye and think, ah, you know, that's what Newton did when he met, when he realized, gee, the apple falling and the moon phases are the same principle, right? He's going into his mind's eye and putting himself there and saying like, why is this happening? What else have I seen that moves through space apparently of its own accord, but next to a big thing, right? Right, he's thinking, I don't wanna be like presuming to know what's going on in Newton's head, but you know what I'm saying? It's like he had to imagine being there. This is how Einstein, you know, first came up with his theories of relativity. He pictured himself sitting on an imaginary rocket ship looking over his shoulder, flying at the speed of light and throwing photons and watching what they look like, right? We need to help young people build the opportunities and the dispositions of mind for conjuring emotions about ideas, emotions about, you know, lived experiences and not the kind of manipulative emotions that are involved in eliciting the kind of behavior or response or procedural knowledge that we deem is the outcome, the learning outcome for that, for that day. And, and that's how I would very clearly adjudicate that, that conundrum that, that Dan lays out. Yeah, thank you. That's very, very clear. And I think that it's because of the way that he frames that question by starting with the phrase, emotion leads to better memory, it's like it's, it's putting emotion in the service of memory and you're talking about something that's much deeper and richer. And it doesn't yeah, feel... About whatever it is you're having emotion about. So let's have emotion about big, important ideas. Yeah, about things that matter. And it doesn't feel manipulative to be talking about you know, if you're talking about whatever it might be, like the credit crunch or, you know, they're, they're these Pandora papers, the way in which rich people are filtering away like public money for private gains, that, that makes people feel angry, <laughs> rightly, rightly so, right? Uh, and that's, you know, the, and it's not manipulative in the way that it's, uh, it sounds like he's sort of saying that, how can I manipulate a kid to learn this fact about the alkali metals by invoking some emotional state that's going to make it stick a little bit like, you know, who can, everyone can remember where they were when when 9-11 happened because it was one of those spike you know emotional spike moments yeah but that kind of memory about 9-11 is what we call a crystalline yeah, memory yeah. right it's like it doesn't get manipulated or deeply understood it's just an yeah. image that you can call to mind or that you can recall but that's not the kind of memory that helps you then understand the complexities of world politics right or what happens when religious extremism you know takes foothold in underprivileged nations right like that kind of memory is very, very viscerally strong, but it does not help you think deeply about complex issues. We need to shift kids. And let me just be clear, it is effortful to conjure this kind of emotion. And it also, you must be physically and emotionally and socially safe 
to do it because you have to neurologically let down guard your outward appearance, your behavior, your one, two, three, all eyes on me kind of attention is lapsing in order to go into this inner space. People close their eyes, they, they cover their face, they put their hand over their face and they think about it, right? They scrunch up their face with the best hmm, like thing, right? And it really means that we need to build out, you know, a context in which kids can start to really engage with their academic skills in a way that they feel like they're constructing it. Because when they construct it and suddenly see the connection and understand it, that little jolt of woo in your anterior middle cingulate, which is that like little, you know, stress response gets interpreted as like emotional relevance, right? I wrote a paper in a little paper with my colleague, Doug Connect, who's an educator. Yeah, that's what I want to move on to, to asking you about the, the, the piece in ed, ed Leadership. Yeah, so so in there we have, and you can actually click on the link at the bottom of the article and go watch the kid who's doing his math assignment, right? And explaining how fractions came relevant to him and how it felt so relevant to his life. I don't. I think we need to redefine how relevance happens. Right now, we think of relevance as being like instrumentally useful in your daily life, but that's not how the brain sees relevance, right? That's relevance with a little R. Relevance with a big R is how it feels to think about and deeply understand this. When that feels like something I can conjure for myself inside my mind, that feels like relevance to kids. They say things like fractions became, you know, really it was relevant to my life, says this new Sudanese immigrant who had never studied math before age 18, right? How does fractions get relevant to your life? What we think happens is it's not about his daily life as a new immigrant in New York City, right, that makes fractions relevant. It's about the sort of tickling up of physiological responding in his, in his brain that comes, we think, from pivoting the seesaw back and forth on this pivot, the pivot being physiological arousal and the sense of self, real physical embodied, like is your lunch being digested self, right, is your heart pounding. So as you move from let me do fractions and dig in in the here and now to let me step back and think about this problem I'm doing fractions with, which for him was Zeno's paradox, right? What does it mean to get halfway and halfway and halfway and halfway to the door, but never reach the door? And it came to this big idea for him of infinity, right? Which was very powerful to him. He said, I had to understand fractions to understand this big idea of infinity. And as I did it, it made fractions feel relevant to my life, right? As he toggles between these, what we think neurologically is happening is as you move yourself and somebody can't move you or you won't get this, okay? As you move yourself from dig in here and now and then notice I need to step back and think about it. And then, oh yeah, reconfigure, dig in again. As you do that, we think, you, and this is a hypothesis we're testing now, we think you're actually physiologically tickling up the network that pivots. And that network just happens to be the same one that makes you go, <gasps> when you make a mistake or <gasps> when you're excited about something and <gasps> when you're like, um, you know, when, you're, when your lunch isn't going well, right? Like it's, it is literally physiological arousal and stress. It's the same region that's involved in challenge, in stress, in emotion, in physiological regulatory capacity, and in attention generating, and in the experience of deep motivational learning. Are you talking about the executive control network here? It's the salience network that is okay. activating the executive control network in the one direction and the, and the default mode network in the other direction. I see. Okay. 
That's that that sounds sort of like counterintuitive. You'd think it was the executive control, like the, the the executive control network where the pivoting was happening. No, the executive control. Yeah, that's what's really interesting. It doesn't seem like the executive control network is doing the pivoting. It's the affective network that does the pivoting. Executive control manages your outward attention once you get there. Oh, and what we find okay. in our teenagers' brain development, yeah, it's a really new way to think about executive control, right? What we find in our teenagers' brain development is that as kids move themselves into this deep caring about a complex issue, and we know this because we've interviewed them and that's what they're thinking about, as they do that and they report they're feeling strong emotion, what we see is an early activation of the visceral you know, salience, followed by ramping up of the executive control network, and then a profound deactivation of executive control as the default mode network comes on. If we don't see that deactivation of executive control, then they just are daydreaming. In order to really think in a concerted way about complex, you know, difficult systems level information, they actually need to get executive control out of the way. But it need, they need to kind of ramp themselves up, kind of oof themselves into like, let me think hard about this and then relax it again and get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So this is what I was wanting to move on to. What I would like to listeners to really hear, because then people might be listening to this and thinking like, I don't know what a default mode network is or a salience network. So can we just briefly go through each of those three and just take it sort of take take them in turn? Should we start with the default mode network? Because it seems like that's the most important one. Chapter two of your book is called uh, Rest is Not Idleness which is a great, great quote. And, um, and I think that that's the, that's the place to start. And then we'll move on to these other two. And then, and then let's just sort of think about the interplay between these three brain networks. And you've already sort of talked about this, but I just really want listeners to feel like they've, they've understood this because when you first encounter this language, it can be hard to picture it because it is quite abstract. Yeah, no, it, it's hard. And let me be clear that we're still doing the work to try to sort this out. A lot, there's a lot of scientists working on these networks, right, and what, they, what they're doing. Okay. Um, and we're trying to understand the dynamic interplay of them in real-world complex thinking, right, ethical thinking. So, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first say that the, the Ed Leadership article, you should make the, the link available to people. Yeah, I will, yeah. That does lay out these different systems in kind of lay language and explain how they're acting in these data. And so that's a good place for people to go back to and to read about it if you want to. Yeah, I will do. Yeah. So I'm going to start back with the metaphor. So if you think of these big networks of the brain, and of course there's all they all have sub-networks and there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, like neuroscientists love to, you know, carve out these things and really think about these in great detail. But, you know, these are just sort of three large networks that are very important, among those that are very important for thinking and for feeling and for managing yourself in the world, okay? And right. if you think of them as kind of like a seesaw, right? And then the, the, the pivot of the seesaw is physiological regulation and arousal, right? It's the systems in the brain that kind of go, <gasps> when you make an error or when you understand something or when you're surprised by something, when you notice something that is unexpected, so to speak, okay? And these systems, our data have shown, are thinner in kids who've experienced more community violence, for example. Others' data have shown, are these are the systems in the brain that are involved in obsessive compulsive disorder, right? They're hyperactive in obsessive compulsive disorder. You always feel like, Something's wrong. Something's wrong, right? Like maybe I forgot to turn the stuff off, right? Over and over and over again, right? Um, these are the systems that get thinner in uh, soldiers who've been deployed as ground troops to war. 
right? Over time, they get thinner, right? It's almost like they're, you're burning out that like response, right? But in young people, a normative version of that response, right, is that you're kind of noticing and, and attending. You're like, oops, I think I messed up on the math problem. Wait, wait, what's going on there, right? Let me dig back in and try to figure out, right? Or I'm not sure I understood that sentence I just read. Uh, let me go back, right? Like that kind of like, wait, what? You know, that is the sort of subtle version. And this is, we think, one of the reasons why trauma and why anxiety ultimately is poor for learning because and is interrupting, you know, academic learning is because you're you're really kind of burning out those systems which are necessary to be able to steer yourself through the problem space, to be able to hear that subtle electrical kind of jolt, like, oh, wait, wait, what? Oh, now that's interesting, right? To be able to go, oh, what, right? That is like being on steroids when you're being abused, right? When you're frightened for your physical or emotional or cultural safety, right? This is why, you know, a math anxiety or a stereotype threat in, impacts learning, right? And, and Sian Bylock and others have now shown this, you know, with exquisite detail in the brain. So just understand kind of what that system does, it's physiological regulation. And so like another way to think about this is um, one of my, my colleagues who's, a, who's an epilepsy neurosurgeon and, and a cognitive psychologist, uh, Joseph Parvizi, who's at, at Stanford, he has this really interesting paper where they were working with a, a man who had intractable seizures, who was in the hospital with, you know, electrical basically like recording that was that was you know this grid of electrodes placed right on this part of his brain because this is where the seizures were coming from and they were trying to figure out what are the patterns that are causing seizures and how could we help help him so he's in the hospital with this thing on his head you know inside his head implanted and him all like closed up with bandages and stuff but in the meantime the very nice person like participated in all these experiments and stuff right um while those things were there anyway and so that they could also start to understand how to how to control what was going on in his brain that was so problematic but one of the really interesting experimental findings is that when they stimulated in this region of the anterior middle cingulate, the man would suddenly report experiencing this sensation. They called the paper something like the will to persevere, right? It was like he suddenly started feeling like, I don't know, it's like there's this storm on the horizon and I'm in a ship and, and it's dangerous and it's and, and we're not sure and I can barely see, but I somehow get this welled up feeling that I can do it if I keep trying and it, it'll go okay if I just dig in. That's that part of the brain. And, you know, this is also why those high accountability, right, kinds of very prescribed methods of education are so problematic. You're training that kind of the brain that you want to notice what's going on that the teacher's giving you and not like that you're undermining that will to persevere. You're directly killing it, okay, by that kind of education. So that's the first thing. That's the pivot. So people have to be able to notice and they have to be safe and free to do that, right? And then they need to develop dispositions of mind for what comes next. And we've shown that different styles of pedagogy actually shape what comes next in the brain in kids, right? So this is work that was led by Solange de Narvaux, who was a doctoral student at that time in Lausanne. And I was on her committee doing this really interesting work. And she, she did work comparing Montessori-schooled and traditionally-schooled youth in Lausanne, who are all high SES, high-performing kids. She found no difference in the socioeconomic status of the families or anything like that, or in the math ability of the kids, like how they scored on the test. But what she showed in the MRI scanner was that after the kid noticed an error, what happened next to these brain networks was, you know, different depending on how they'd been exposed to school, had they been in Montessori or traditional school. 
And in traditional school, what happened next was kids, um, if they made an error, they just freaked out in the brain and moved on. And we're not likely to, not more likely to get it right the next time or anything like that. If, uh, but if they got it right, then the next thing that would happen is they activate the hippocampus and they contract the, the anterior middle cingulate, this like physiological region that's like the will to persevere and all that, you know, gets in contact with the hippocampus and says, remember this, this is the right answer, right? If the kids were Montessori school, then after they got it right, not a lot happened. But after they got it wrong, the, the, that anterior middle cingulate hooked itself up to right parietal regions, frontal regions, the regions that we know are involved in math processing and in strategic thinking. And we're being like, well, wait a minute, what happened there? Let me see if I can figure that out. And they were much more likely to get it right the next time. So we're actually showing that pedagogy shapes the way these brain networks happen. So that's the, that's the pivot that's underneath the seesaw. And then you can either kind of dig into, you know, you can sort of tip yourself into like, whoa, what's happening here? Pay attention, you know, ramp up physical control and dexterity, right? Like the way you would in a soccer game when the ball comes your way, right? That's that, or dig in one, two, three, all eyes on me, everybody's paper moving on the pencil, do the task now, all that, right? Or you can alternatively kind of let go of that and move into this more free form space where you kind of marshal yourself and you have to learn to do that, right? To not just daydream there, but to think about complex transcendent issues, the why it is the way it is. What else does this, what does this mean for other things? How does it connect to other things I've learned before or to other things I've noticed in the world? And, you know, how, why is this important? What does it mean for the other stuff I'm thinking about? How does this all go together? What should I do next? Oh, okay, let me try this now. And coming back out of it, pivoting yourself with another one of those little like, yeah, let me, and digging in and doing, right? So it's really kind of about toggling these networks back and forth so that you're leveraging all three of them in the service of appropriate thinking, depending on what the situation calls for. Yeah, yeah, I've got you. Thank you very much. I think what I'm going to do is after we wrap up this conversation, I'm going to just briefly share with listeners who sometimes prefer to, to learn auditorily than reading. I'm going to share with them some of the key bits from that paper that you wrote with Doug Connect that, that, about breaking down these three these three regions, as you say, which it does in very in very lay terms. Or just go find the paper. I mean, it's on our Kindle website. You can just go get it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And also the three sort of like uh, pedagogical recommendations that you come up with at the end of that paper. I'll talk about as well. And by the way, in terms of candle, I feel like I should congratulate you on what I feel is one of the most successful acronyms in the whole of academia. I, I wish I thought of it. Doug Connect actually was the one who thought of it. I was like, Kane, I can't call something Kane. That's an education. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Kane, right? I, like, Wait, development learning at Kindle. And I was like, it's so good it's literally like a candle in the darkness it's beautiful and and not just for that but for the metaphor but just so many I like i sort of collect ridiculous academic acronyms they've always got like it's like a word that's not quite spelt right and some of the letters are capital letters so this just works so hard it never works but candle is beautiful so yeah yeah absolutely and of course i'll link to i'll link to candle and um, i might wrap it up in a, just in a couple of minutes because there's something that i'd yeah. like to ask you offline if i may before you have to get off to your lab it'll, yeah. it'll be really quick so i mean just to just to draw this together i mean there's like i say my head is spinning but this is so 
incredible the work that you're doing i mean I, I, it's clear that you can see the significance of this and i certainly can and i know that i know that other people are starting to really turn onto it and go this is it this is like the smoking gun of like of sort of like the the the, the evidence that underpins all of these ideas that people have been trying to get off the ground. Like, for example, just like that one idea that I referred to recently, philosophical inquiry, where kids sit in a circle, basically. It was developed yeah. in the States. Matthew Lippmann, yeah. I don't know if you know him, Columbia University. Um, he's been around for a long time. And we recently ran randomized control trials on on philosophical inquiry in this country. And the, cool. out, and the outcome, well, no, not cool. Because the, out, oh. the outcome variable was reading and math scores. Oh God! I know they 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 spend millions of pounds on these trials, and then and then like they they ran one trial, and they were like, oh wow, P four C improves reading and math. And actually, if you look at it, the data was a mess. Although they had randomized, they hadn't they hadn't controlled, so the the, the control group had far higher prior data. So it was just like re regression to the mean sort of thing. It was a mess. So then they ran a whole other trial, it cost another load of millions of pounds. And they found, lo and behold, it doesn't. And then the headlines are P4C doesn't work. And it's like, oh, my God, guys, this is really stupid. You're totally missing the point. The point is that like, like you're, measuring, you're measuring the wrong thing. And actually, that's something else that's a concern of mine, which like, I don't know if we've got really time to discuss. But like, if people are going to get with this agenda, it might quickly turn into like people trying to measure kids' emotionality or sociality, right? And it'll just it's just going to turn into a new spreadsheet and another set of sort of things to push kids through. And there's, there's, a, big, there's a big concern there as well, yeah. But, but maybe maybe we'll pick this up and have more of a, like a strategic, like put our heads together at some point down the line because where we go next with this information, with these understandings, uh, taking them out into the world in a way that's that's public facing, that's easy to understand, is a, a really important challenge. But just to come back to that phrase that you used earlier, which is so sort of powerful, where you talked about that at the moment, the way that we're educating kids is robbing young people of of the opportunity to learn how to be in the world, how to fully become themselves, how to be fully developed social successful beings and that's not okay you know and like i say like, this is sort of fascinating for people who've got like a geeky mindset and they're like i'm really interested in these brain networks and stuff it's fascinating but it's also like the moral purpose that underpins this work is sort of overwhelming like the, the amount of kids who are suffering because of the ways that we've misconceived learning as a purely rationalistic thing, something that only happens from the neck up, and in particular in the frontal lobes, is like uh, just a, doing a, a such damage. Like it's a, it's just very very important, and I would like to just say a massive thank you for the for the contribution that you've made to this and to my own understanding. It is absolutely phenomenal, um, and my default mode network is lighting up like a pinball machine. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Great. <laughs> um, time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.